he can let this settling process be a simple act of kindness and friendliness as we listen and respond to how the body is, not afraid to make adjustments if that's what's useful now. And even every breath can be a simple gift. The body breathes in, brings in air, feeding the body. The body exhales what needs to be gotten rid of. Let's take a few moments and simply feel the different sensations in the head and in the face. But instead of relating to these sensations in the head and face with a critical eye, we can have a a generous interest. It's actually possible to care about the sensations, even the sensations that are as simple as feeling the hair and other sensations along the scalp. What does it mean to be kind as you simply feel the sensations along the head, the ears, the back of the head? In a loving way, feeling the forehead and the brow, temples. One of the most obvious characteristics of metta, loving-kindness, is its capacity to include this welcoming quality. So as we feel, for example, the forehead and the brow and the eyes, just as they are, notice this capacity to include everything. So we're not in a sense, discriminating between the good sensations and the unpleasant sensations. Willing to receive, willing to be sensitive to the way that it is. As we feel more and more the face, including any places of tension, for example, in the jaw, in the eyes, in the mouth. A willingness to be intimate, to be forgiving and patient. And part of love, loving kindness, is this quality of interest, willing to be close, willing not to forget how it is. So for a few more seconds, feeling the entire head and face, together. So we begin to equate a full, clear presence with the experience of love, this generous presence.
undefended presence. And then we can do the same thing now with the throat and the neck and the upper shoulders, tops of the shoulders, shoulder joints. So in a sense, we're letting the awareness soak in, express its capacity to be patient and forgiving and its capacity to be intimate interested its ability to put away judgment and any kind of critical orientation for a while. Ah, this is how it is. The shoulders, the throat, the neck. This is how it is now. And when you notice impatience creeping in, just remember, you can even ask, is it possible to be patient now? Is it possible to be more fully interested, willing to be close to how it is? We can also practice now with both arms and both hands and all the fingers, of course. Willing to see and feel things as they actually are in the arms and hands. And you can use thought, words in your mind, to direct the attention, to open to this loving way of relating, loving way of being. For example, you could repeat the phrase, I care about the arms and hands. May they be happy and at ease. It's as if the loving awareness has a quality of sort of loving touch. So if the awareness is actually making, having an effect on the arms and hands, that simple, generous presence, that willingness to be close to the sensations, And we can practice with the entire torso, both the front and the back sides, all the organs, sides of the torso. So take your time and let the loving attention settle here, welcoming all the different sensations as they are. I care about all of these sensations now, here in the torso. I care about the heart center, the lungs, 
the entire structure of the rib cage. I care about the shoulder blades and the kidneys. I care about the entire abdomen, all the muscles, all the organs here, all the way down to the pubic bone. And I care about the lower back, the lower spine, the tailbone, and the structure of the pelvis, the groin, sits bones and floor of the pelvis. I care about the entire torso. This willingness to be close, to be present, and to just let things be. And when you're ready, from the pelvis down into both legs, taking our time. In this loving presence, there's a fearlessness that's also part of being present in this way. Not afraid of unpleasant sensations that might be arising. Now opening to the legs and feet. Part of love is a willingness to be committed, to keep showing up, learning how not to believe (coughs) thoughts of being bored. care about these legs, these feet. May you be happy. May these legs, these feet be at ease, healthy. And let's end. Take a minute or so. Feel the whole body together. In a very real sense, of course, a sense we normally don't realize, but in a very real sense, this body is our best friend. Sometimes it does well, and sometimes it doesn't do well. But notice, I care about this body. This is a very true, authentic feeling to have. I care about this body. I care about how it is right now, this body sitting just the way that it actually is now. I care about this body. The expression of this simple, pure caring is a willingness to be close, to be 
aware of how it is now, not picking and choosing the sensations, but just willing to be open, undefended, willing to feel what the body feels, and to relate, to meet the body with love, with kindness. Patience and forgiveness. Why not? And in a simple way, notice how wholesome this is to be relating to the body in this way. Could there ever be a time when this would be unwholesome or inappropriate to have this kind, attentive, loving connection with the body? In a way, our relationship with the body is our primary relationship with so many of our other relationships in the world are just various expressions, manifestations of our relationship with our body. So it seems worthy to take some time to Cultivate a very beautiful and wholesome relationship with the body. Stretch out if you need to, so you'll be comfortable. In about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll do another meditation uh, using some of the more formal techniques, I guess, uh, for loving-kindness practice. So one thing to keep in mind during these four weeks is we want both formal strategies that we can use when we have not much going on, we're in a quiet room, we've got 20 minutes, no disruptions, and we can train the mind in a particular way when those conditions are really suitable, but then there's the rest of the day when a lot's going on and we're on the move, but we also want to, during these four weeks, think about, reflect on, and develop skill with ways of practicing that make sense in daily life. A lot of it has to do with just remembering that it's possible to practice. Not getting stuck on like the formal technique, but feeling empowered to be creative. And it really, a lot of that willingness to be creative and just to try, a lot of that comes from, uh, people don't like the word faith, or at least some people don't like the word faith, or confidence, 
in the goodness of your heart. This is the, probably the most important thing that we can get out of this class, is some deepening confidence in the goodness of your heart. And again, we need to strip away any sense of superficiality, like if you just had a wave of disgust when I said, you know, confidence in the goodness of your heart, that's a sign, isn't it? What does that say? Like it says, any kind of disgust says something like, I don't believe it, you know. And this is just interesting. Like, what do we think? Do we feel like underneath, not too far beneath the veneer, there's a monster that just wants, you know, chocolate and sex and power and <laughs> immortality and any other things? <laughs> That's my list. <laughs> TV. Right, entertainment. You know, just it's so sweet just to be able to lose ourselves in something. You know, whether it's a book or a show or conversation, not to really have to be here, just to get absorbed into something that's, you know, suitable distraction that will hold us for a period of time. So, you know, we go to those things mostly because we don't think that when we show up into the present moment and there is some awareness, some presence, often it feels a little sterile and bleak. And so that's why we rush toward chocolate or sex or entertainment or, you know, dramas, hating. Even hating is more, you know, attractive to us than just being in our body, being in the moment. So... That is the great irony and tragedy in our lives is that we're quite literally afraid of the present moment, of that stripped away, simple, relaxed presence in our life. We want to neurotically fill up the space. And I think that fear is because we don't have some direct relationship with our inner goodness. We don't even know what that means. And when we hear it, we think somebody's talking about some idealistic religion that we were forced to digest when we were kids or something like that, you know, where people were just, you know, idealistic uh, and somewhat superficial. I'm not pointing fingers. I mean, you can find that in Buddhism as you can find it anywhere. So it's just part of our nature to sort of want to take the easy out. You know, the easy out is like, to whip up some idea about goodness, God, divine, and then just work really hard at believing the picture that we painted for ourselves or the picture that the community has painted for itself, as opposed to doing the more challenging work of actually looking, is there anything actually good in the mind, in the heart, so that our confidence isn't based on something we've read or some kind of cultish dynamic in our community where, you know, you're, if you're going to be in, you got to believe this. You can get that again anywhere, not just, you know, in any organization, any spiritual group. One of the things that, for me, when I got started in my Buddhist practice that was so trustworthy is this emphasis on our direct experience and self-reliance and becoming independent so that our own experience is our teacher, 
not we're not sort of orienting toward some outside thing. I mean, initially we need some instruction because our tendency is just to keep doing what we've always done and getting the same results over and over again. And if those results were deeply satisfying and enlightening, we wouldn't need to be studying or learning. But because the results we're getting in life aren't perfectly satisfying, we're interested in being open. Like the Buddha said once, you know, when we meet the frustration in our lives, the difficulty in human life, uh, one of two things happen. That suffering, that stress either leads us to, I think he said something like, beat our breasts and lament and wail and, you know, where suffering or difficulty leads to more difficulty. The reaction we have is just sort of feeding the experience of stress and dissatisfaction. Or the experience of difficulty can lead a human being to search. And he says something like, in the talk he says something like, is there anybody out there who knows anything about how to relate to difficulty in life? And that's search. You know, we, we listen. What have been, what have people been saying? Like how to relate? How to transform this experience of suffering? Uncertainty, insecurity, feelings of being alone, feelings of being suffocated by our relationships. You know, the whole range of unsatisfying, difficult life experiences. So where does the search lead us? Well, one way, you know, like one thing that search might lead you to is a class like this where somebody says something about the basic goodness of the heart. Like one time the Buddha, this is an often quoted phrase from the teachings of the Buddha, he said something like, the heart is naturally radiant and pure, although it's obscured by visiting defilements, right? So often, most often, our mind, our heart, is obscured by these habits of being greedy, these habits of being angry and upset and bored and irritated and critical of ourselves and others and comparing, wanting, distracted, disconnected, in denial. So we have these different emotional, mental patterns, habits, and they obscure. And the thing is, because they're so effective at the obscuring, you know, what we could say the heart with a capital M or the, uh, no, that would be mind with a capital M, <laughs> heart with a capital H, you know, that's so, they're so effective at obscuring this natural heart, the organic heart, that we, we don't believe it anymore, you know. And so then we can be justified acting as if it's a dog-eat-dog world. Because it's all kind of mean, and so we might as well dig in and get what we can get, get the nice experiences we can get, however temporary they might be, at least it's something, at least we've got our haagen ice cream for a while, or we have this for a while, or whatever. And we don't really want to know much about other people and their suffering, or because we just don't have a place from which to open. You know, we can't actually open to the world, open to our lives, open to our friends, our loved ones. We can't actually be a good friend when we're in this needy, irritated, angry place. 
I'm sure you've noticed, it doesn't really work. I mean, we pretend to be a friend all the time when we're in those places, but it doesn't really work very well, and it's not very helpful to our person we're relating to. So our first and foremost homework, our first and foremost responsibility as a human being is to at least be interested in the question, is there something essentially pure and radiant and good near at hand? Here, but obscured. How might I find out? I mean, that's an appropriate question, isn't it? I mean, we live all life with this heart, this mind. We don't even know what it is. When's the last time you put aside four hours? I mean, some of you probably have done more than four hours, more than once. But generally, a typical person, if you ask, when's the last time you put aside a few hours to really get interested in your mind and heart? Not sort of the thoughts in your mind and heart, but what the essence of this heart-mind thing is. We don't. We get, we're totally okay about spending a couple hours looking through some catalog, because it might be something there we want that will make us happy for a while. Or, you know, think about what we spend time on. It's pretty amazing. I mean, how many movies, TV shows, and books we've watched or read that were just about distraction. I mean, it wasn't somehow we didn't think we were being edified in some way that was going to change our lives in some meaningful way. But we did it because it was entertaining. We knew right from the beginning it wasn't going to give us anything lasting. So part of what we can do these four weeks, and partly why I'm sort of beating this drum, is to encourage us for these four weeks, and it's a really appropriate time of year, let's get really interested Actually, it's just three weeks, but you can keep going, right? <laughs> you know how that works. It's a four-week class, but there's only 21 days between the first and the last class. So we have 21 days, so we've already ready, lost a week. <laughs> don't get stressed. <laughs> but, but wouldn't it make sense for us to take 21 days to get really interested and you don't have to start with the idea that there is an essential goodness and beauty and radiance in the heart. But just an open mind about it. And uh, enough sort of interest. You know, through the course of history, a lot of seemingly wise people, these people that are held up as being special, have said something to this effect, you know, that there's something essentially good about the heart. So I know we're all busy, but this is the most important thing. I mean, what would be more important? Like, it would be the worst thing imaginable to live our life having not done this investigation. That would be the true tragedy. Can you imagine, and it might be good for us now, just to imagine on our deathbed having been busy, you know, all of those years doing things, you know, earning our living, taking care, and but to have really missed this, interest in the heart and to not just be interested but to be willing to apply yourself to, to study it you know to kind of check out what, are, what have people said like how do you study the heart how do you study the mind what are the telltale signs like anybody got a road map you know, it's like 
one of the nice things about the Buddhist teachings is he spoke in, in really psychological terms. So it, for Westerners especially, it, it lends itself. It's so pragmatic how he talked about the heart and mind. It's a pretty clear roadmap, like how to first, you know, you need a good instrument, so you develop a balanced mind, a mind that's clear and relaxed. We call that often samadhi, you know, or developing concentration where the mind's not fragmented and distracted and, you know, overwhelmed by strong emotions. So we develop this balance, and then, and then we begin to find our way in, so to speak. By learning, you know, with that balance, we learn not to be confused by what arises. Just keep looking beyond it. It's almost like looking right through it. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, had this really powerful image, especially in terms of loving-kindness practice, where he said, sometimes that intention, or even like repeating the phrase, which we do sometimes in the loving-kindness practice, made his heart be at ease. You know, there's any number of phrases you could use. So let's just consider that one. May this heart be at ease. You know, and then the emotional response from the heart, from the mind is, hell no. You know, or you don't deserve to be at ease. You've been a jerk all day. Or it isn't fair. You know, sure, you could be at ease if this happened to you, but it didn't happen to you, and that's not fair. It should have happened to me. I was the one who should have been treated that way. But no, no, I had to go to this other person. So, Joseph Goldstein likens it to a, a nice, beautiful drop of cool water hitting red-hot metal. And, you know, that's... So, you might... Your investigation, your interest in loving kindness, both in a formal sense when you do the meditation, as we'll do in a, you know, five or ten minutes, but also just generally in the day, as you're living your day, and you're just remembering to be interested in your capacity to be gentle to be tender, to be kind, to be patient, to be forgiving, to be appreciative, to be grateful. You know, all the different flavors to be compassionate, to be joyful, to be intimate. All the different flavors of love, you know, it's like um, we're remembering and we have this, this fluency now, like we're willing to remember the different flavors. And we're just seeing like, or any of those available now, you might get this reaction like your mind, your heart, doesn't want to be doing this work, doesn't want to be investigating. And the real trick is that strong emotional response, hell no, you have two options at that point. You can be identified with it, like, oh, I guess I'm not. This is not the right time to practice. Or... What's the other option? When your mind says hell no to yourself, you know, or gets tight, or reacts in some negative, aversive way, well, you can care about it. Oh, there's red hot metal here, you know. Things are really tight. The heart's really constricted. It's really heavy. It really hurts. You can just name the pain that that red hotness represents. Oh. Oh. I care about this. And that's the great thing about loving kindness practice. That's why that's sort of an expression of the essential goodness is it doesn't need 
the conditions to be any particular way. There is no particular condition that can arise for a human being where we wouldn't be able to relate with love. Like, imagine some situation where some flavor of love, whether it's compassion or joy or basic friendliness or forgiveness or patience, imagine what, feel free to bring it up, like what situation where it wouldn't make sense no, I know, it's true, we could all think of situations where it's not our habit to be relating with love, right? But stepping back from what's our habit, what situation would, where, would there be where it would be unskillful, inappropriate to be relating with love, with kindness, with patience, with compassion? As the Buddha says, you know, the four emotions that we're going to be looking at these next weeks, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, these are the four emotions of the heart. And really the only four emotions we need to navigate life. We don't really need the other emotions. Or any emotion we do need is going to be some something related to these four emotions, you know. Like, well, where's forgiveness there? Well... Forgiveness has qualities of kindness and qualities of compassion, qualities of equanimity. So, you know, we can generate a list that's bigger than these four, for sure. But you get the sense that we're able to do everything we need to do as a human being with these four emotions. And they immediately feel good. It's like immediately when we're relating with one of these four emotions, we're better off. And we're just more skillful. So what we're setting in motion in terms of cause and effect in our lives going to be better off what we're setting in motion with loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity than with irritation. Or I mean, just think about the last time you were with a good friend or a partner, you know, and you were relating with impatience. I mean, what does that say? It doesn't, first of all, it's not easy for the other person to receive our impatience. It's not easy for us to feel our own impatience. And nobody wants to live the life that comes out of being impatient. You know, it's just tight. That's what impatience sets in motion, let alone rage or hatred. When we think about all the terrible things that have happened in the world throughout history, you know, they've all come out of a particular emotions. Right? Human beings operating with particular emotions. So, we have a lot of evidence what comes out of hatred, what comes out of greed, what comes out of delusion and distraction and denial. Do we need any more evidence? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we do. So, part of what you're going to see as you're living your life these next weeks is you're going to see yourself acting out these so-called negative emotions. Instead of hating yourself for that, Just receive the lesson. Really see what it sets in motion. See that it doesn't work, because that will reinforce. First of all, that study itself is an expression of kindness. To be interested enough in our negative emotional patterns to see what gets set in motion, that's already being skillful. And it will convince us, little by little, not to go there. Just like Joseph Goldstein with that image, the cool drop, you know, the willingness to be interested, the willingness to care, the willingness to remember the possibility of joy 
see beauty and to respond with appreciation. It's one cool drop after another. Well, if there are enough cool drops, even if the metal is red hot, it begins to cool down. At first it's, you know, and then there's just a little warm vapor. And eventually, the red hot metal isn't red hot anymore. It's also cooled down. And this is partly what we do with the formal practice, which I'll share now, and then we'll stretch your legs and we'll do some of it, and then there'll be time at the end to check in about that. So over the next four weeks, we're going to do a formal practice that's very much the same, but first week, tonight, we'll do loving-kindness phrases. So the phrases that are evoking what you could call a basic friendliness of the heart. And then next week, we'll use phrases that are evoking compassion. And in the third week, phrases that evoke appreciative joy or an empathetic joy. And in the fourth week, phrases that evoke equanimity. And remember, there's a real place in the world, in our lives, for thinking. A lot of people, when they don't know much about the Buddhist teachings, they just assume thinking is some bad thing. No, thinking that's coming out of greed, anger, and delusion, that sets in motion you know, painful results. But thinking that comes out of wisdom or comes out of kindness, that can be quite useful. Because any words that are directing the mind in the direction of wisdom or in the direction of kindness are useful thoughts. So this practice that we do, we use thinking. In fact, in some ways, it's a very demanding practice uh, relative to our basic mindfulness practice because we're specifically being mindful of the feeling of loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity in the future weeks. But tonight, we're using thoughts and images to help illuminate the potential for real feeling, real emotion of loving kindness. So we're using thoughts to sort of break through the crust. Maybe we're a little exhausted from the day, a little fried or burnt out from the day, kind of have some residue pain from a difficult interaction from the day, or just generally having been beaten down by life for however many decades. And it may take some persistence where we're bringing up the phrase, we're feeling the heart center, however numb it might feel, or alive, or tight, we feel just energetically the heart center, and we generate a phrase, and we offer it out to ourselves, or to another being, or to the world, that there's a movement of generosity. Each time you repeat a phrase in your mind, you want to really have a sense that you're offering it as a free gift. You're willing to do something positive. You see, it really changes the gravitational pull. You know, normally we're kind of, it's a, I'm here to get something from this class, to make my life better. And there's a, even though you're doing something relatively wholesome, there can be greediness. But when we do the practice, it's the opposite movement. The heart is giving something away. Even if we're giving that good wish toward, to ourselves, it's still that movement, kind of an upwelling, Generous movement out of the heart, out into the world, to ourselves, to another, to the whole world. And so we're sort of priming the pump by feeling the heart, by bringing somebody to mind, ourself or another person to mind, 
and then sending out a good wish to them. Now, I'll just give you the tr- traditional uh, four phrases that have been used in the Buddhist tradition, but you can, it's totally, in fact, it's important to be creative. I mean, don't keep changing them, but find words, phrases that resonate, that you can connect to the meaning. Now, I'm going to send out some instructions. So, some of you received an email, I don't know, a week ago, reminding you that you had signed up for this class, right? Remember you did? And a lot of you didn't receive that email because you registered after that email was sent out, or for some reason you didn't register. That's okay. But if you want to get the instructions, I need to have your email. The people who already got an email, I have your email. (laughs) The people who didn't get that email a few days ago, I don't have your email. So you need to sign in. Everyone should sign in. And it would be nice if the only emails on that sheet of paper were the ones who didn't get it. If you got it and you put your email down, cross your email out, it will save you from typing in or somebody volunteer for typing in your email. And I'll send out some instructions. So don't worry about memorizing the instructions. I'll get them out tonight or tomorrow morning early so that you can work with them at home. But they're pretty straightforward. So the first phrase, the traditional phrase, is somehow we're, we're generating a wish May I be safe from harm. Or if you're working with another person, you're visualizing or remembering your dad or your mom or your cat or your niece. Or Generally, we start with easy people, people that are easy to love. Then, may you be safe and protected in your life. So something about safety. Because that's a primal wish. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to be safe? So when you repeat that phrase, you're connecting with something that's actually true. That's why it's not sentimental. You actually want to be safe. And then when you bring to mind somebody else, start with somebody you really want to be safe. Don't immediately start with somebody you really don't want to be safe. You feel like they deserve some punishment or something. So we always start with people that are easy for us to work with. So the first phrase may, I'll just put it in the context of doing the practice for myself. So, may this, and sometimes I'll use the word heart instead of may I be safe, instead of the personal pronoun. I'll just say, may this heart be safe and protected in all ways. Then I just sit for a few seconds, and I let that expression, that simple expression of a generous wish, I just let it reverberate for a few seconds. Like, how does that feel? May this heart be safe and protected. Just sit with that. And then the next phrase after a few seconds. And it really has to do with the heart being happy. So you could say that. May this heart be happy and peaceful. Or if you want to use the word mind, that's fine. May the mind be happy and peaceful. You can use a personal pronoun if it works better for you. May I be happy and peaceful. So it's just up to you. But a phrase, basically you're wishing that your heart be happy and peaceful. Or something like that. And then the third wish is for your body. And same thing. You tune in to your body or the other person's body if you're working with somebody you care about. You know, may your body be healthy, free from pain. Something really simple. It's like a well-being in the body. So, first, safety. Then, wishing the heart be happy in some way. Wishing that the body be happy or healthy or free from pain in some way. And then the fourth wish is really like May you be, may you operate in the world in a skillful way. So generally the phrase is, you know, may I 
live my life with ease and joy. That's similar to the traditional phrase. May I live my life with ease and joy. Or, of course, if you're using somebody else, may you live your life with ease and joy. And you can even visualize them sort of negotiating their life with joy and with ease and with real skill, real confidence, success. Right? That's a beautiful wish. Then we start over again. So we're doing four things. Well, three things, rather. We're feeling the heart. Just whatever you feel here. Don't look for any particular thing. Just feel what you feel. Be aware of your heart center. You're visualizing a person or a group of people, but initially you start with somebody easy, either yourself or somebody who's easy to love and generally not a very complicated relationship. You may love your partner, but it may be a complicated relationship, so it may be better not to start with your partner. Start with a niece, a cat, a mentor who's just really been there for you in your life, or yourself. Those are the usual suspects to begin with. And you only go on to more challenging people, challenging beings, when you have, it's starting to move. You feel a natural movement of love. And so, why not expand it? That's what love wants to do. It wants to keep including. Because what we're uncovering isn't a love for ourselves. It's a universal love. And it's just, it's easier to find with ourself or with our cat or with our niece. So we start there. But you want to begin to recognize it as a universal friendliness, a universal goodness, goodwill for others, for self and others, going out equally in all directions, above, below, all around, and even to ourselves, as one of the Buddhist chants goes. So, let's stretch our legs, and then we'll do this for about 20 minutes, and then we'll check in. So feel free if you want to stand for a minute or so, just to release any tension so you'd be comfortable sitting. ready, you can just take your time and find a comfortable posture. going to begin with a forgiveness reflection. Just take a few minutes. And you might find that it helps to loosen the heart up a bit. So sitting in a relaxed way and then bring to mind 
some situation from your life where you've harmed another person. It could be something from long ago or something from earlier today. It doesn't matter. To see what situation comes to mind. Do what you can to remember <clears throat> what happened. And in particular, take your time remembering how easy it is to make mistakes as a human being. How easy it is for us to act in ways that cause harm. And in some sense, as if you were standing right there in front of this person, you might say something like, it isn't easy being a human being. In fact, it's easy for me at times to be afraid, to be needy, to be confused. It's easy for me to make mistakes and cause harm. So I'm asking, please forgive me for any harm that I've caused you. So now using your own words, of course, silently in your mind, again, imagine you're standing there in front of the person that you've harmed, and what you could say that, in a way, authentic way, asking for forgiveness. You can do this several times. Take as much time as you want. And when you're ready, feel free to bring another situation to mind, a time when you've harmed somebody. And just see what comes to mind. Take the time to remember the situation and to visualize as if you were there with the person. And then ask for forgiveness in your own way. bringing to mind a situation where you've been harmed. Probably best not to bring to mind the time you were harmed the most, but sometime in your life where somebody harmed you, hurt you. 
And as you find a situation and you bring it to mind, remembering that person, remember that it's not easy being a human being, not easy for that person being a human being, that it's easy for all of us to act out of fear and anger, to act out of greed, to act out of confusion. And also being aware that we're ready to put down the resentment, to put down any fear we have. So as best we can, we offer our forgiveness. As best I can, I forgive you for the harm you've caused. I'm ready to put down this load. So as best I can, I forgive you. I know it's not easy being a human being. So as as best I can, I forgive you. So just continue silently for a few minutes. And finally, we forgive ourselves for being an imperfect human being. So just having a felt sense of this life, this conditioned mind, habit-bound mind, and all the different ways that we've lived in ways that have been hurtful for ourselves and others. And as best I can, I forgive myself. I forgive myself for all the pain that's been caused to myself and others. As best I can, I forgive myself. So just continue on your own for a few seconds. begin the loving-kindness practice now. So just feeling the heart center first. And take your time. Bring to mind somebody easy to love. You might want to begin with yourself or some other being that's easy for you to love. 
Just see who comes to mind. I'll do the phrases as if you're beginning with yourself, but if you're working with another person or another being, then just change the pronouns. So we're feeling the heart and we're having a felt sense or even a visual image of the person, the being. May this heart be safe and protected in all ways. And may the heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and free from pain. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. And then we begin again. I'll say it out loud, but you can repeat silently after me, and then I'll do it one more time, one more round. May this heart be safe and protected in all ways. And may the heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and free from pain. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. And you can continue on your own. Feel free to adapt, adjust the phrases so they're meaningful. And remember, each repetition is a simple but beautiful gift. You're giving yourself or giving another person. Coming back to the phrases, use them to direct the attention to the actual experience of warmth, of kindness.
continue working with whomever you began with. If it feels appropriate, bring to mind another person easy to love. Take your time to, if you can, have a clear visual sense or felt sense of this person, this being. And perhaps notice how the heart responds as you have a clear sense of this person, this being. May you be safe in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may your body be healthy and strong. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. So continue on your own. as an experiment, we can bring to mind somebody we don't know too well. could be somebody who works near you or a neighbor, even somebody sitting near you tonight, somebody to the right or to the left or in front of you. And you may not have any idea who they are, but you know they're a human being. And you know that they want to be happy just like you want to be happy. And that they have difficulties, just like all human beings do. So we bring to mind what's called a neutral person. Somebody where we don't have strong feelings. 
and we realize that we do have this wish, may you be safe from harm. Just connect with that simple wish. May you be safe from harm. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May your body be healthy. May you be free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. And again, we'll continue for a minute or so. All beings, without any exceptions, all the human beings, all the creatures, all the unseen beings, may all beings be safe from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and free from pain. May all beings live with ease and joy, free from suffering and free from the root causes of suffering. Taking another few seconds, feel the goodness of the heart, the willingness of the heart to care, to wish well. Just appreciating the heart. Stretch out your legs a little. And we'll take some time now. There's a, of course, there's really a lot I could say, but it'd be nice just to make sure people have some time to clarify the instructions, anything confusing that arose that you want to bring up. 
be very useful for all of us. So don't be shy if you have any questions or experiences you want to share with the group. Any effects? Any red-hot metal? feel like you have to keep the four phrases. I mean, when the practice, for different people, depending on how our minds are conditioned, a single word, almost like a mantra, could be more useful than four phrases. So again, this is the traditional formulation, but this kind of practice has a lot of space for creativity, like making it your own. But just so you know, the distinction is, like, that basic primal wish for safety, then you're really connecting with the ecology of the heart and you're wishing for happiness, like you're in your heart or in that person's heart, may they experience happiness and peace. So like a happy place in the heart. And then the body, the same way. And then the last is really imagining the person or the being operating in the world with ease, and skill and joy, like they can handle what's coming their way. So it's a, it's it is similar. They're all just sort of similar, like different facets of well-being. You know, health is also happiness. You know, having health. Yeah, but it's also okay to just have one phrase. May you be at ease. May you be happy. That time. Well, for this kind of practice, it's really useful to be comfortable. You know, in regular mindfulness practice, pain can be, as you know, can be a very good um, object for practice, you know, as long as it's not overwhelming pain. But in loving-kindness practice and in other practices that have a real particular focus, it can be an obstacle. So whatever you can do to, at least initially, to not be bothered by physical discomfort is useful to do. But yeah, if you have to, I mean, one thing you could do is you could let your practice go towards compassion. (coughs) In the instructions I'll send out, the compassion phrases will be there, the appreciative joy phrases and the equanimity phrases will be there. Some of you have taken the intro class have gotten that handout, so you can just track it down if you have it at home. But in our real practice, we can... We can, at any time, transition from a loving-kindness practice to a compassion practice. And so if we're meeting some pain and suffering, or as we're bringing somebody to mind, what we see in their life is that they're really struggling, then we really want to be doing a compassion practice. Because that's what we do when we're relating to what's challenging or difficult. We use compassion to stay close, to be close. So if the pain in the knee is intense then you can drop the, you know, if you're bringing your bunny to mind, you know, may you be soft and warm and happy. 
and then the knees bothering you, well, you can drop the attention to the bunny, your cat or your friend, and you can say, oh, this hurts. I care about this pain. May this heart be at ease with conditions just as they are. And you just sit with that. And you, oh, this hurts. So you kind of name the truth or you, you're willing to connect with the truth. This hurts. This is unpleasant. And then I care about it. I care about that it's unpleasant. And then that positive wish, that act of generosity. May this heart be at ease with these conditions as they are. And you just see, uh, it will be useful. Even it's not like sometimes the pain might go away, but the pain may not go away. It's not about making the pain go away. It's about relating in a skillful way to pain, and that's what's going on. And being able to be close, not to have to be distant from the experience. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Steve. First, just let me say, metta is the Pali word for loving kindness. I'm not sure I made that clear. And so a lot of times in Buddhist circles, we use the word metta instead of loving kindness. Because loving kindness is overused. I'm not saying you shouldn't use it. It's probably good to reform the word. But, you know, we love hamburgers. We love all kinds of things. And so, but with metta, it's because it's a new word, we can use it in a fresh way to mean this universal kind of friendliness that isn't even about the object that we care about, because it's really the metta, the love, is this inner feeling of being willing to include or to accept and be close to whatever is happening. You know, it doesn't matter, like, I like this as opposed to that. That's not metta. That's more like a business relationship, right? I like the things that are pleasant, and I don't like the things that are unpleasant. And so Steve's question was, He's been doing a little bit of metta at the beginning of his sit, and then he tends to forget about it and just go into mindfulness practice. Well, that's an interesting thing, just to lose track of it, you know. So it's nice to have a pretty clear resolve in the mind, like, what you're going to do. Are you going to do metta for the whole sit, for part of the sit, or are you going to just, you know, do it for a few minutes at the beginning and then do... And then just stick to that. Especially in the beginning. Later... When you have several years of regular practice under your belt, you can be much more fluent with the different skillful means you have learned over the years. Being mindful in this way, bringing your attention to your breath, doing the formal loving-kindness practices, doing a loving-kindness body scan like we did earlier. I mean, there's literally an infinite number of skillful means you can use when you're living your life and when you're doing your formal meditation practice. But initially, the mind's habit is not to want to dig in deep. So it's like nice, and like for example, for these three weeks, it might be nice 
to do a lot more of the loving-kindness practice just so you're forcing yourself to dig in with the formal loving-kindness practice where you're making yourself do the, the phrases. So if you sit for 30 minutes a day or 45 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day, then just do the loving-kindness, if not every day, at least some of the days, do it for the whole period. Because it's really good to go through those cycles where it's very rich and you actually feel like your heart's cracking open and there's authentic feelings of love that you normally don't access. And then, it's, and then for some strange reason, you go through this desert. It's like you don't feel anything. It's just like numb or hard or red hot or something. And then maybe it opens up again. And to, to not to be afraid of the different places, you just keep doing it. Just like you do with mindfulness practice. You don't give up or get, uh, stop practicing because you're confused. You just know, oh, that's just confusion being known. The same thing with loving kindness. You try to find a way to keep it going, even if you have to change the phrase so that your heart can connect in a loving way, whether it's compassion or joy or equanimity. These are, you can basically use any of these four qualities or anything related to these four qualities to stay in the game. Because what we're doing is we're using our capacity to be mindful and to direct the attention. So we're finding ways to to notice this capacity of the heart to connect. Because love generally in all these different flavors of it is just the willingness to be close, to include. That's what it is. And the sort of simple definition of what's unskillful is all the different ways the mind closes things off, cuts things off, evaluates things in terms of good and bad. That's, you know, the opposite of love or uh, metta. I think, Steve, Charlie, did you have a comment? This is kind of like about the hot metal. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the place in the hot metal for me is uh, uh, it's anxiety that is like a feeling of brokenness. And um, it does it does help. I feel it when it goes there. But, but um, like tonight, there were times where for some reason it's up for me tonight. And um, it's like it's like a, a crying baby. Yeah, and then it's really loud inside, and then there's this, and then there's my attention, which is different than it, and I can feel this different, you know. But the baby's really loud too, and so it's like this eye of the needle thing, which is like, you know, not trying to fix it because that's my habit is like trying to feel different. You know, so there's this real balancing act where it's like the part of me just really wants to, you know, okay, just calm down, you know, as opposed to just being with it, and it's just really subtle and it's very new. Yeah. Well, it sounds very rich. And I think the, the point that it brings up for me is that during these weeks when you're in, your intention is to learn about loving kindness, you're going to have to, and this goes back to what Ty was saying too, which is similar to what Charlie says, there's going to be a difficult experience that's going to come up. Now, in terms of the loving kindness practice, and this is remember this point, we're always starting where it's easy. But just because we're starting with where it's easy doesn't mean that challenging experiences, whether it's knee pain or some emotional, deep emotional pattern that tends to come up when the mind quiets down, those things are going to still emerge. But when you're doing the formal loving-kindness practice, it's okay not to pay attention to what's predominant. Because you're training your mind to hold in your mind the image of somebody easy to love, whether it's yourself or another person. 
You know, and you're practicing not going to these other things. Now, sometimes you won't have a choice. They'll get so loud, you're just going to have to turn your attention there. But if you can, just keep coming back to the person that's easy for you. Because the thing is, the more the concentration builds with that person and with the feeling of loving kindness, the more that that pain, whether it's a deep emotional pattern or just physical pain, it's going to recede into the background of attention. It won't be as much of an issue. Now, when you stop doing your metta practice, it will reemerge if it's still there. But now it's going to be met with the mind that's been infused with loving kindness, emotions of loving kindness for a period of time. And you'll be more able to see clearly what it is. Because one of the things that gets in the way of being mindful of very subtle, challenging things is the lack of balance. And loving kindness brings a powerful balance to the mind. We're just so much more stable when we're grounded in love and real compassion. And just It's just so much easier to be skillful, whether it's skillful in terms of the subtle investigation that Charlie was talking about, or subtle or creative just in our day-to-day life in responding to what's coming our way. You had a comment. I forgot your name. Stephen. Well, you can always change the phrase, because that's, uh, you want to use a phrase that works, but remember, and this is actually a really important point, it's, a, it's somewhat artificial, using the phrases, the phrase itself isn't important, what's important is the generous movement of the heart. So what we're really, we're using the phrase as a vehicle to notice how the heart cares. And that is willing to express that care, willing to be generous with its good wishes, knowing that we know, I mean, it's like we know that your happiness, your health is part of these innumerable causes and conditions. And the fact that I'm wishing for your good health is a relatively minor force compared to genetics and what you've been eating and the life you've been living, right? So, but, but even though the uh, power of my good wish to affect your happiness, to affect your health or well-being may be limited, you know, but that in no way says anything about how wholesome that wish is for me, the one who's actually having it. So even though my wish may not totally transform your life, it is absolutely transforming my mind in that moment. When I authentically have the wish, may you be happy, my mind is in a very good place, regardless of whether that wish makes you happy or not. The beautiful thing isn't that I've fixed you, 
The beautiful thing is that I, my heart has been transformed. I'm not in a negative state. And that's the point of the practice. So the way we are transforming the world isn't that by radiating out love or compassion, somehow we've got psychic powers and it's affecting everybody and the world's becoming a utopia. But that our heart directly is being transformed because we're in this place of caring, of being generous, of really uh, being connected, being open, willing to include everything, not closing off in any way. And if I can do that, then you can do that. And if you can do it, then the rest of us can do it. And if we all do it, the world actually will be transformed. Even though we'll still get sick, even though there may not be enough food, even though there may be a global environmental crisis, but if everybody was in states of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, it would there wouldn't be a problem with how things are. And so this is the difference between a worldly approach to problems and a spiritual approach to problems. A worldly approach to problems would be, you know, investigating the kind of medications we can give Stephen so that he'll be happy and the kind of surgery we can do so he'll be healthy, you know, get a new liver, a new this. But a spiritual approach isn't to try to change the conditions of life. It's to discover a way of being free with the conditions, being loving and wise with the conditions of life. There's a great image, and I think it goes back to the time of the Buddha where he said, you know, you're walking around on this earth barefoot and, uh, you know, getting cut by the sharp stones and getting thorns, and you've got two options. You know, you can cover the world in leather or a nice shag carpet, or you can make a pair of moccasins or something, a pair of shoes. And it's the same thing. A worldly approach to life is to, like, get enough money so we'll never be poor, enough friends so we'll never be lonely, enough health so we'll never be sick. It's totally frustrating, just like it would be frustrating to cover the whole world with leather. Or we can develop wisdom and love so that a kind of wisdom and love that it doesn't matter what the conditions are in our life. We'll be free, we'll be happy, we'll be loving. And that's kind of resolving that, I think it's an important point to make because our normal approach to this kind of practice would be, we want results. So I'm sending that, but you're still miserable. You know, I've been doing compassion practice to you, Mark, for weeks, and you haven't been fixed yet. And I'm pretty sure it's not my practice. It must be you. (laughs) And, uh, but, so we really, this is the important part. That's why um, one of the things we're doing when we do the practice, we're watching the heart, we're feeling the heart. You know, whatever that is for you, you're, you're kind of aware of the core, the essence of your experience in the moment. So we just call that heart, right? So we're paying attention to the heart because we want to notice that when we actually are authentically wishing well, in a place of kindness, in a place of compassion, we feel the freedom of that place. We are free of negative emotions. That's the freedom we discover. We can, and this is not, you know, a lot of times we get turned off by spiritual practice because it seems like there's this Mount Everest we have to climb. And, you know, there's a sheer rock face and we have trouble with little hills. And and it's just so convenient to give up. 
But what we have to understand is this is really available. There is no reason to give up. And this is a good thing to end with. It's 9 o'clock now. Because you may be enthused now, but come next Tuesday, you may think of all kinds of reasons not to come back. And it's really worth giving, you know, giving yourself these four classes and the time in between to do the practice. Because in these simple ways, it is totally available for us to transform our minds, our hearts. It's not out there somewhere. We just have to apply ourselves to it. So take a look at the instructions. I'll send it out by at least by 10 tomorrow, if not earlier. And uh, come next week with questions. Just take some of the things we did tonight and, and incorporate them in your daily life and in your formal meditation practices during the week so that you have uh, comments and questions to share next week. Because it's always good to hear from people about what they're learning. It just helps all of us. If you have some time, all of these folding chairs go downstairs to the right and to the right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.